Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we look both backward and forward as 2015 comes to an end. I do think it is important that we continue to explore. That's what we were meant to do as human beings, and uh, we ought not to let anything get in our way of pushing the boundaries to continue to explore in every way that we can. In 2016, the new television version of Florida Frontiers will begin airing on PBS affiliates around the state. Of course, the people we interview, they're bound to be telling us interesting things, but just citizens wherever we go, people are really into Florida history and culture. 2016 will be a presidential election year and we'll look back at the highly contested Bush v. Gore election. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Established in 1565, St. Augustine is the oldest continuously occupied city in the United States. From the European settlement of the New World to America's manned exploration of space, Florida defines the boundaries of the modern era. In the late 1400s, Spain was unified under Ferdinand and Isabella, who funded the first European exploration and settlement of what they thought of as the New World. In 1513, Ponce de Leon literally put Florida on the map and gave our state its name. Historian and author Jim Cusick. That voyage uh, is documented, fairly well documented, but mostly in accounts that uh, come much later than the voyage itself. Uh, and there's still a great deal of controversy and a great deal of debate as to where Ponce de Leon first comes uh, and uh, makes landfall and comes ashore in Florida. Uh, we know it's along the, the Atlantic coast. We know it's more than likely somewhere between uh, the Cape, uh, Cape Canaveral, and uh, uh, areas just south of Jacksonville, somewhere in there. Um, having done that, he explores a little bit to the north, uh, turns around, goes down uh, and rounds uh, the tip of Florida and goes over to what the area that's now Charlotte Harbor and Fort Myers and explores there. He comes into contact with numerous Native American groups, the Ais uh, on the Atlantic coast, the Calusa on the west coast. Um, and, uh, and then also kind of goes back out and explores part of the Caribbean and the islands and then 
um, and then returns to report his findings. Ponce de Leon returned to Florida in 1521, hoping to establish a colony, but his efforts were rejected by one of the many sophisticated tribes of Native Americans who had been living here for thousands of years. The Calusa Indians of southwest Florida attacked the settlers and Ponce de Leon died from his injuries. Other Spanish explorers came to Florida in the following decades, seeking land, wealth, and slaves. Susan Parker is executive director of the St. Augustine Historical Society. There's um, Narvaez who, you know, comes at least to make an exploration attempt, perhaps with the idea of, of later settling. Of course, the better known one, of course, is Hernando de Soto who comes through Florida and 14 other states. Um, and then we have the ill-fated um, attempt to s establish Pensacola. Probably would have been successful, except for the bad timing of arriving just at the same time, almost as a hurricane. And the hurricane sunk most of the ships, destroyed most of their supplies and their food. They did hang on for a year and a half, um, always starving. I always think it's interesting how people starve for a year and a half. But because everybody's always starving. It's like you can't starve for that long. But that's the report. Possibly because what they were left to eat, they felt as if they were starving. It was not what was familiar. It's not what they, they had expected. And after the Pensacola debacle, you know, Spain rather lost interest in Florida. It seemed like it was not perhaps the place to try to make, to establish a permanent foothold on the North American mainland. Um, the French try to make their own attempt in 1562. They arrive probably off the, off the coast of Florida, near Jacksonville, go on up to South Carolina, you know, hang around for a while, leave their mark, and then two years later come back and establish Fort Caroline in 1564. With the French establishing a foothold in what the Spanish considered to be their territory, interest in establishing a permanent Spanish settlement in Florida was quickly rekindled. The fact that the French were Protestant Huguenots made the Catholic Spanish even more determined to reclaim Florida. Don Pedro Menéndez de Avales eliminated the French colonists and established St. Augustine as the first permanent European settlement in what is now the United States. I think what's so amazing about St. Augustine is after 450 years of being a, uh, an active town that people live in, it's still here and it's still tiny. It's, it's survived not as a big metropolis, but as a tiny, tiny little place for 450 years. That's incredible. There's not that many places that anywhere in the world, really, that you can say have done that. Um, and if you walk around the town today, uh, you can get a sense, I think, still of what the colonial era was like here, because the scale of the town is still um, very... Uh, uh, old. It's, it's, it's got a 19th century skyline. There's no skyscrapers here. I mean, yes, if you go out to the beach, you'll have tall condominium buildings and things. But, uh, but there, you know, there are, there's, there are no, uh, the, the tallest building here is the 1920s bank building, basically, and everything uh, else is uh, earlier than that and much uh, lower in height than that. And the streets are the same size. I mean, they're a challenge for modern uh, vehicular traffic because they're so narrow and the sidewalks are high and they're narrow, but that's because, you know, they're, they're really built on the colonial scale. And so that, that's something that I think is very unique, is that, you, you know, when you walk into this town, I mean, 
you know, it's still guarded by a 17th century stone fort. Nobody should leave St. Augustine without visiting Castillo de San Marcos, the, the Spanish fortress. It's the oldest Spanish fortress in the United States. It was uh, begun in 1672, you know, almost 350 years ago. Um, it's, there, you know, you can still find them in other parts of Latin and Spanish America, but it's definitely, it wasn't unique at the time. You know, there were lots of them similar to this. Um, there's a very large one, of course, in Havana, Cuba, that looks like, this looks like a small version of it. There's one in Matanzas, there's, there's some along the south coast of Cuba, and all over Latin America, but this is the one um, in, 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 in the U.S., in the North American mainland. While the colonization of Florida is an important element establishing the beginning of the modern era, most contemporary people would probably feel lost in that world. If we were suddenly sent back into the 16th century, uh, we would be in a foreign land, a foreign universe, basically. Um, and so foreign that we would not even know how to put our clothes on. I mean, that's how foreign it would be. I mean, how many, how many men today know how to put on a doublet or hose or, um, you know, a rough collar? And how many women would know how to put on the, you know, the, all the underskirts that uh, women wore in those days? Um, uh, or even to put your shoes on because they wouldn't have been, you know, lace shoes or flip-flops or things like that. Um, everything about that, that world would have been, would be foreign to us. We wouldn't know how to do anything. Uh, that comes naturally to us now. Um, so when we talk about what people's attitudes are at that time, we have to remember that they had a totally different mindset. Uh, there were a lot more superstitions at that time. Uh, the uh, religion, uh, regardless of where you were in, your, in Europe, you know, uh, religion and the church and faith played a much bigger role in, uh, in life. Uh, was much more physically present. Uh, you know, among the first things that happened here was the building and the construction of churches and then later of, of friaries and, and conventos and things like that. Um, and of course, there's, you know, the, the whole mindset of how the world works is very different. I mean, you know, they, there's, there's just not the kind of information that we would have today Historians, humanities scholars, and sociologists say that the moment Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon, the modern era ended and the postmodern age began. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. The lamb footpads are only uh, uh, depressed in the surface about uh, one or two inches. I'm going to step off the lamb now. As the first steps on the moon were taken on July 21, 1969, Neil Armstrong inspired future generations of astronauts. I remember sitting in front of my television watching those old grainy pictures come about when Neil Armstrong first stepped on the moon. I was actually home, I was a freshman in college, I was 18 years old. Uh, 17, almost 18 years old. Anyway, I, I remember when it happened. I was sitting in the living room watching the television pictures alike, along with millions of other people around the world. And I can remember again how exciting that was. Winston Scott became a NASA astronaut, serving on two shuttle missions, making two spacewalks, and spending nearly 25 days in space. 
when we launched on the space shuttle. Uh, you've been lying on your back for a couple of hours now, and it's a little bit uncomfortable. You've got that big bulky suit on, you're in a heads down position. You've been training for a year or more. All you want to do is get the show on the road. You hope nothing happens and you have to abort and come back the next night. But when you're lying there and it finally happens, you can hear the countdown, you can see the countdown on your instrument, and all of a sudden, all this smoke and fire begins to billow up around the windshield. The engines are, are, are firing and smoke and, and, and shaking and vibrating but nothing's happening yet. This is seven seconds. And all of a sudden the clock hits zero and it leaps off the pad. It doesn't rise in slow motion the way it looks on TV. It jumps off the pad, sorry, kicks you in the back and it's shaking and vibrating and you accelerate, it, it pushes you back into your seat. And uh, the, the acceleration is tremendous. The entire ride from Earth to orbit is only eight and one half minutes. It is an incredible ride. There's nothing else in existence that goes like the rocket. Stars guided the navigators aboard the Spanish ships that came to Florida in the 16th century, many sailing past Cape Canaveral. The astronauts launched into space from Cape Canaveral have a different perspective on the universe. The stars do look different. They're brighter, they're clearer, and they take on more of a three-dimensional effect. Some look closer than others, which, which they are, of course, but you, you can see it more readily than you can on Earth. Uh, also, the constellations, look brighter and clearer, you know, even, you know, we're still long distance from them, but, but looking at the constellations again, the, the clarity is what's so amazing. And uh, if you never leave Earth, it's impossible to perceive just how clear things are up there because we don't look through any atmosphere. So you have the stars, and depending on when you're there, and, and uh, you can see other planets. Because I can remember looking out and seeing Mercury and seeing Venus. Earth, of course, was right beneath me. So you, you get that perspective up there. Just, uh, just, it's so different from viewing, viewing them from down here. The same brave impulse that allowed European explorers to climb aboard ships and sail across the ocean to unknown destinations, including Florida, is alive and well today. I can imagine what it would be like to be on the first crew going off to Mars. Now that would be cool because you kind of, sort of, maybe know objectively what's going to happen, but you don't really know because nobody's done it before. I do think it is important that we continue to explore. That's what we were meant to do as human beings. And uh, we ought not to let anything get in our way of pushing the boundaries to continue to explore in every way that we can. We spoke with colonial-era historians Jim Cusick and Susan Parker and astronaut Winston Scott. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, find out about upcoming events, and become a member of the Florida Historical Society. That's myfloridahistory.org.
That's the theme music from the new television series version of Florida Frontiers. If you like this radio program, you'll now be able to get even more great content about the history and culture of our state on the television version of Florida Frontiers. The first station to begin airing the program is WUCF-TV Orlando, who will debut the first episode on Sunday, January 3rd at 1.30 p.m. WJCT-TV Jacksonville will begin carrying the program on Saturday, February 6th at 5.30 p.m. The program will air once a month, and other PBS affiliates around the state will be adding the program to their schedules in 2016. FHS Director of Educational Resources Bendy Biasi will be back next week, but today we're talking with John White, FHS Director of Media Production. John, you edit this radio program each week, but you've also spent the past year working with me on the new television version of Florida Frontiers, premiering in 2016. We've already gone to some pretty exciting places in Florida for that program. Yes, we have. Uh, one of my favorites, actually, was Bach Tower Gardens. I'm a lifelong Florida resident, but I'd never actually made it over there until just recently when we went to shoot, and that was a beautiful place. Seeing that tower up close, really impressive. People who haven't had the opportunity should get out there and check it out. It's amazing. And then to be able to go into the tower was truly incredible. Quite a view of Lake Wales from up there. Really like that. Yeah, that was great. Uh, few people do get a chance to go up and actually see the uh, Carolina Orr performing, uh, Gert de Hollander, and, and uh, it was amazing to, to watch him be able to play. Yeah, he plays with his hands like a piano, but totally unlike a piano. He's kind of pounding on these levers and things. It was a really interesting thing to watch, and completely unlike anything I expected. I figured he'd be sitting at a traditional keyboard playing, but apparently this is a very specialized skill, and this guy is one of the best, and it was really cool to watch him play. Lake Wales, where Bach Tower Gardens is, of course, is in, in central Florida, but we've already been from, from north Florida to, to south Florida filming this program. Which makes me think of Vizcaya down in Miami. We recently went down there to Vizcaya Museum and Gardens. That, too, was pretty impressive. Again, it was largely because of the nature that, that I liked it so much. It's a beautiful, uh, just amazingly landscaped place, but the house, too, is incredible. I can only imagine seeing that house when it was brand new back about 100 years ago. It's an amazing house. You actually make a great case study for the effectiveness of this new program because while you're a dedicated fan of public broadcasting, you don't really have a background in Florida history. So has our entertaining new television program taught you anything about Florida history and culture? Well, one thing it's taught me is people are really into history in Florida. Wherever we go, people are very enthusiastic. You know, of course, the people we interview, they're bound to be telling us interesting things. But just citizens, like when we went to the Battle of Alusti up in North Florida, a lot of folks there, a lot of enthusiastic folks. Uh, people are really into Florida history and culture. And I got to tell you, people stop me all the time and tell me they hear the radio show and they're big fans of the radio show and find it very interesting. And it just shows that people have this deep interest in Florida history and culture. Now, you mentioned the Battle of Alusti. Episode one of the television series version of Florida Frontiers looks at the Civil War in Florida. What will viewers see in this very first episode? Reenactors, and a lot of them. And this was a really dedicated bunch of people. What, it was in the high 20s the morning we went out to shoot, and it was early, and these folks had camped overnight, so they're really dedicated to this stuff. But it's not just getting dressed up in costumes and going out there and running around. Uh, there were kiosks and 
all sorts of informational things around and uh, music. And it was great. These people are very, very much into this thing. It was fun to see. And in addition to the Battle of Alusty reenactment, uh, we also went and talked with some folks about the sinking of the, the Maple Leaf. And that was very interesting, too, because it was a part of Florida history with which I was completely unfamiliar. I don't know if most people know about it, but uh, it's worth taking a trip up there and checking out the museum. There are a lot of really cool artifacts that came off the steamship that sank. And it makes me realize there are probably things like this all over Florida, interesting little uh, museums and pieces of history that people aren't even familiar with. So I'm hoping to learn more and more about this as we go deeper into the program. Well, finally, John, uh, are you happy that Ben DiBiase will be back next week? Most definitely <laughs> happy. I am, I am certainly a behind-the-camera and behind-the-microphone guy. I don't really feel comfortable on this side of it. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, John. Come home, Ben. <laughs> John White is Director of Media Production for the Florida Historical Society. The new television series version of Florida Frontiers will debut on WUCF-TV Sunday, January 3rd at 1.30 p.m., and the program will begin airing on WJCT-TV Jacksonville on Saturday, February 6th at 5.30 p.m. Additional public television stations around the state will be adding Florida Frontiers to their schedules very soon. This is Florida Frontiers. 2016 will see a presidential election in America, so to get ready, we're looking back at one of our nation's most disputed elections. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com talks with Charles Zeldin, professor of history at Nova Southeastern University in Broward County and author of Bush v. Gore, Exposing the Hidden Crisis in American Democracy. All right, can you briefly describe the legal question at the heart of Bush v. Gore? Ultimately, the question at the heart of Bush v. Gore was who won. But on the legal side, it was more a question of how do we fix a broken legal, uh, excuse me, broken election system after the fact to determine who won the presidency. We had run into these situations where literally we couldn't tell who had won. The, 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 the difference between the two uh, candidates was so close that it was within the margin of error that we had known for decades came from our voting, that traditionally in Florida, we would have about a 2 to 3 percent of votes that weren't counted properly or that were questionable. But when somebody won by 5 or 6 percent, who cares? Well, in this case, when it's down to less than one half a percent, then we care. And at that point, it's, well, how do you determine how to organize and count the votes to determine who's going to be the next president of the United States? I remember during the time that there were a number of pundits who came across and said, well, a lot of the problems with the voting irregularities date back to the late 19th century with things like the butterfly ballots and all this kind of business. Was there truth to that? Not in the case of the butterfly ballot. That was adopted contemporaneously in an effort to try and, and not have to make the font so small that old people couldn't read it. Uh, there were nine separate candidates. And with that many candidates, 
there just wasn't room on one page unless you shrunk everything down or you went to a butterfly ballot or in the case of, of Jacksonville, they went to an inchworm ballot in which you had it on two pages. Now, those things did cause problems. The problem that goes back to the 19th century was the fact that actually going back to the uh, Constitution of 1885 is that there was a fair amount of autonomy in the canvassing board of each county as to how they counted their ballots. We did not have a state, uh, a process to recount ballots statewide. You had to actually go to each and every county canvassing board and ask them to recount the ballots. So the problem on a practical level does go back to the 19th century, but it had to do with the decentralized nature of our electoral system rather than things like the butterfly ballot. What do you think the lessons are we learned from the uh, Bush v. Gore? The, the lesson is actually pretty simple, that we did not just have broken voting machines. What we had was a broken electoral system, that the way we organized and ran our electoral system was old, it was creaky, and in a close race, it would collapse under you. It's like, it's like driving you know, a 20-year-old car. It, it probably is going to get you around town when everything's normal, but if you had to get on the highway and go somewhere in an emergency, that car is not going to make it. And we, we realized that, in fact, we had a crisis in American democracy. And that crisis was is that we had an electoral system that couldn't count every vote when we needed every vote counted. And some of that was technological. The IBM machines were outdated. But some of it was just the way we organized the electoral system. Uh, some of it had to do with the local autonomy that we gave counties in terms of how they counted votes. Uh, so that there really wasn't an equitable way in which votes were counted in, in Florida or in any state. The head of, of elections for the state of Georgia at the time said, I thank God that wasn't us, because if, if we had been looked at as closely as Florida was, we'd have failed also. And most states would have. Uh, people don't realize that Illinois had a larger spoiled ballot rate, you know, ballots that couldn't be counted, than Florida. In Florida, we had about a 3.5% spoiled ballot rate. They had over 5% in Illinois. The problem was is that Gore won by like 10% in Illinois, so it didn't matter, whereas in Florida it actually did. We needed to fix how we ran elections, and that's what the lesson of 2000 was. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com spoke with Charles Zeldin, professor of history at Nova Southeastern University in Broward County and author of Bush v. Gore, Exposing the Hidden Crisis in American Democracy. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Visit us online at myfloridahistory.org or listen as a podcast. In 2016, watch your local PBS schedule for the television version of Florida Frontiers. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a wonderful holiday and a very happy new year. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.